Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of Fan Fuel. This is a podcast where fans feel talk about motorsports. Last week, you got to hear from my dad, uh, and he'll be back joining us this week. Of course, I'm Alex Harrington, and we'll be joined by our other host, Nathan Ball. Uh, nothing happened this past weekend. We didn't have any racing. We had the Easter break. There was no Formula One. IndyCar still hasn't done anything other than testing, so... We don't have any racing to talk about, but what we wanted to get to this episode was kind of where my enthusiasm from racing comes from, and it's a direct link to my family. So let's welcome back my dad, uh, Ace Race Flagman, as called by Ted Alstead from Sonoma and AMS, uh, Chad Arrington. Uh, So welcome back to the show. We loved having you last week. Um, let's, Let's go ahead and just start the show off with... How did you get into racing? I can attribute that to both my mom and dad. Um, No, I was not born in LaGrange like you were, or Georgia for that matter. I was actually born in Washington State, Tacoma, Washington, because my dad was in the Army. Um, I I was lucky enough to go to my first race as a month old. And my dad loves telling the story. The fact that as long as the motors were running, which must have been sweet music to my ears because I would sleep. And as the motors would stop and they would get ready to do another race and everything was calm, I would just bawl myself to death and crying and screaming. So obviously I've loved racing since that moment in time. Well, basically you've just been a natural. And then of course you pushed that on to me. I was... I was still in diapers when you took me to my first race, and I think it was it was Busher Race, right, at Atlanta. Yes, and you had not even turned two yet. You were you were a couple of months away from turning two, and you you know the funny part was race car was your first word, not mommy or daddy, but race car out of all things. Um, you as a quick study learned a lot of drivers. And their numbers real quick and Mark Martin happened to be your favorite even then and we just happened to see him before the pre-race stuff and we screamed at Mark Martin and you were screaming at the top of your lungs and we were down coming off of turn four he had walked out of the garage headed to driver introductions and whatnot and he actually got to hear us and he turned and waved at you at that point in time because you was waving like crazy. I had both hands on you, keeping you on the concrete wall at the fence. <laughs> of course, I don't remember you any talk- of that. Of course, you're talking about having a having a good old time now. That week, it was me, my dad, and Alex. So three generations was there for that one race in Alex's first race, which was really kind of cool. I don't know how many can actually say that. I mean, there's probably a lot, but you know, I don't know that you're, you always got father or dad or granddad and grandson, but not always do you have granddad, dad, and, and the son there at the same track at the same time. Yeah, and uh, our family, uh, not just, you know, Pop, as I like to call him, your dad, uh, and 
and his wife Nana, as I like to call her, were were a part of the racing in the family. You you also got some racing from from Pop's brother, uh, Uncle Neil, as we've got to call him. Uh, there there was some there was some stuff that he did that got you into flagging eventually. But where where did all that start? Well, um, you know he he's got a son that's seven years older than than me and. And he and my cousin Danny and he is his son is actually seven years older than you, which is really ironic. And then Uncle Neil and my dad are like eight years apart. Um but my uncle started racing in the sixties and he was a champion at, in a in a hobby class division up in Coweta County, I believe, at the Coweta Raceway. Um but after that no, you got a bunch of racing friends uh, around here, and uh, called my uncle to be the flagman at the uh, Troop County Go Kart Track. And here I am in kindergarten. My cousin's racing go karts. My dad's building the motors and um, flying the go kart for my cousin to race because I was too young. But my uncle let me on the flag stand with him quite a bit, and he taught me how to flag. And we had a couple of kids that started coming that raced their Suzuki little 50 motorbikes. They'd race around the oval just like the go-karts would. And any time that they got out there, I was the same age as two of them. And I got to flag them. It was just cool. So I got my start at flagging on the flag stand at five years old. Now, is this the same Troop County Speedway that we lived down the road from that was, uh, I guess, overgrown forest by the time that I was born? No, that's actually the track that um, big cars in the 60s run on. The go-kart track was really close to where the LaGrange Police Department shooting range was over on the airport road. Um, Close to, just past the animal shelter up in the woods up there on top of that hill. Okay. Um, if you still go up there, you can see it from where they asphalted the track at later years, and that's when it declined. It was it was better dirt than it was when they paved it asphalt. But I never did flag it because they wouldn't let the kids ride on the asphalt once they put the asphalt down. I didn't get the flag after that. And next time I flagged was probably right around the year 2000. Yeah, and uh, with that, you uh, you had already had me, obviously, because I was 1995 when I was born. And, and you had gotten down into... Uh, a track that actually I live by now, East Alabama Speedway, but you got there not by flagging, uh, but you were taking photographs and selling them of, of the cars, and you were kind of doing photography as a as a part-time job. You were working with the newspaper uh, off and on through my childhood with, with local football as well, and that kind of got you down there to, to the track and and how how in the world did you go from taking pictures to to being on the flag stand? Well, taking pictures was a fun part. Um, I remember the football a little bit better than anything because I can honestly say that 
I was there when the Callaway head coach got his first start and I to interview him. And now look at them now. They just won the state championship this past year. I mean, it's been 20 years or so that he's been the coach there. It's kind of cool. I was actually being able to one, be the one that got to be one of the first ones to interview him and take photos of the team. And then from there, it got to be where I just made a joke about one, one newspaper person. I said, you know, it'd be cool if uh, I could get into one of these NASCAR races with the, y'all, y'all's credentials. Y'all let me get in at the uh, high school level. Next thing you know, bam, I was taking pictures of NASCAR races. And because I did that, I was able to go to other short tracks and take pictures. And that's where I met some other people higher up after asking for credentials based on passes that newspapers had given me. And the more that we talked to certain people and whatnot, they found out that I had actually been a flagman since, you know, I got my start at five years old. And then at the time, I was taking pictures on Friday night at the go-kart track for Beverly, who is the youngest of the Thomases, and she was working at the Thunder Ridge go-kart track. And when I told her that I'd flag, it already promised somebody else that they could flag that year. Then the following year, I started flagging for her. After that, it just sort of skyrocketed into where I was her go-to guy. And I was going back and forth Friday night. I was at Thunder Ridge go-karts Saturday at East Alabama, flagging the cars there, all from taking pictures and getting to know folks. Well, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's like those stories we hear even from the NASCAR industry. You got guys um, talking about how they start in the shops, you know, buffing floors all the way up to crew chiefs like a Rodney Childers or drivers starting on uh, Ron Hornaday's um, couch and and whatnot, and it, it it's just a, 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 it's neat to hear those stories because it's not just a something where something leads to someone going professional, but, and being in the limelight, but someone like you who's there, you know, every weekend that people might not think about, you know, even though you're vital to a show. You're correct. Um, sometimes it, it, it's, it's good to put your stripes in by earning your time, you know, in the flag stand. And the more you do, the more people recognize you, and then you get invited to places to go flag when they need a flag. Um, same thing for race directing. You get so far, you know, you've got enough knowledge that if you just do it right, you can do both because you've heard so many different race directors in your ear over the years. Now that we are receiver dependent in the short track world, um, get to hear all those conversations. Because as a flagman, you would really, you got the track radio and you've got the receiver radio, so you know when when things are happening. That might be your only communication from a traveling series is through receiver in one ear yeah and a lot of guys probably listening to this podcast who's not really 
been involved in short track racing and just watch on the TV with the big guys and cup and Xfinity and stuff, they might not realize that that short track racing, especially in the dirt, you, you really only have that one person guiding the race. It's it's a driver with the race director and maybe an addition of the flag man on on the receiver. And then other than that, you know, short track guys have have a spotter and maybe a crew chief depending on the length of the race. So it, it's a lot different than having four or five guys on the radio at once during a cup race because you've got the spotter. You've got the ability to talk back as a driver. You've got the tower uh, with the with the race director and you've got your engineer and your, your crew chief as well. So it, it's, really, it's really neat. Um, to kind of get someone's perspective like yours who's who's experienced in doing that for 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 so long um in dirt and a little bit of asphalt racing um but i guess let, let's kind of continue where we were at with with your progression um is there any kind of stories or anything that you want to talk about from from east alabama in particular or your flagging days because i mean you can tell everyone here that you weren't just a one-trick pony. You started getting invited all over the southeast. Yeah, uh, I mean, I made I made a few good friends along the way that helped me get to a lot of these tracks. Or they, you know, not all of these track owners just own tracks. A lot of them own race cars and have somebody driving for them, whether it's their own uh, son or maybe brother. They've got some hired gun that just drives a snot out of the car. And these track owners will see you in these big two, three, and four-day shows that I was privy to be a part of at East Alabama for the Alabama State Championships and the National 100. Now, that being said, off the eye of some other folks, I got to go to Magnolia Motor Speedway right after it first opened and flagged there. And I got calls from other officials series that say um we don't know that their track flagman can handle this will you come flag our series event for them and you know you just get the call and it's kind of nice to know that they appreciated you seeing you work so hard to get to where you've done it's on a weekly level or a local level um so it's really hard to describe but it's almost like you know you get that one percent of high school football players go to college and then that one percent of the college guys go to the pros right well i'm the high school guy that got to go to the college because i started going to these other tracks i'm a local guy because of what people saw and then they asked me to go depending on when and what oh there was a whole year i took off from east alabama because guy who owned cleveland speedway then god rest it soul cleveland speedway is no longer with us because it was sold and tore down honey morrow asked me to come flag a couple of times and then First one was one of the gobblers weekends. And, and, you know, to me, that was one of the bigger races that you could have flagged in the middle of the 2000s because the Southern All-Star Show 
they usually had 60 to 68 to 70 cars there for a five or 10,000 to win race. It was awesome. And then at that point, you get these, you're getting to a track that runs super late models every week. You got guys that come in like the soil, the world of outlaws at different tracks. And then all of a sudden you're starting to be recognized on a different level where sometimes you get that other phone call from a different track because they've seen you flag for those events. It does help. Yeah, and uh, you wound up, if I remember correctly, Monty also had either ownership or he was running North Georgia Speedway, so you were you were flagging for him two nights a week, Friday and Saturday, at, at both North Georgia and Cleveland, and then eventually you got to do the, the first ever Deep Fried 75 at Duck River in Tennessee, and like you said, Magnolia Speedway in Mississippi. Uh, but eventually your efforts uh, moved from the flag stand to the booth and you started race directing now how did that happen and i want to say you were probably doing most of most of that kind of work on the flag stand as well at some of these races yeah um you well, i guess the progression actually started around 2012 when we were all on vacation in orlando and i got you know, it was raining, and we were all supposed to go take that NASCAR ride along for my birthday, your birthday, and my your pop's birthday at Daytona. But it got rained out on that same day. Got a call from Atlanta to come flag. When Atlanta Motor Speedway did it, you know, I had already been working back and forth and filling in maybe once or twice a season as a race director. From time to time but when that happened and you had all of those i started learning from a different level race directing in my ear at that point i was able to do stuff from the flag stand because i had a two-way radio or meaning one headset button for each radio um, one for race receiver and one for the track radio, and I could talk to both the drivers and whatnot because not always as a race director, if he's working, see everything that's happening on the track. He's having to pay attention to other stuff. I started directing cars down to get their fenders pulled or put them back in, into proper locations based on running positions and stuff like that just from the flag stand. Us when we actually had an opportunity at Sonoa, I told them that I would actually do mine from the same pay rate if they'd give me a chance in the tower. I would that way I could they could make sure that they hired a, a flagman on still my same level, and they would they let me hire the flagman to replace me, and I went up to the tower and we started there. That started in 2016. Then I started doing it in a couple of different places, as well as I think it was after I had two years under my belt in 2018. I was talks at Atlanta Motor Speedway. At one point, I could possibly be doing it there. And 
I started working different roles there at Atlanta Motor Speedway because they were training me to do other stuff so that I could then go to the tower. And in 2019, I was able to go to the tower full time for Atlanta Motor Speedway. And he raced director over their whole Legends program there, which is definitely cool. But it too was a progression, and you know you had to work your way depending on what what track you were at. You might have had to take a little bit of a different path to get there. You had to show initiative to that you did. Hey, I'd like to do that too. Yeah, well, I I kind of grew up with with you doing that, so I, I've always kind of just piggybacked the fact that you're my dad. If you need me or somebody else that you know needs me, you say, "Well, I'm busy. Call my son," and that's pretty much what I've been doing since. I don't want to say I could drive, probably. Um, and, uh, you, and, you've had, you, yeah, you've been flagging, I think, since about you were 14. Yeah, on. And I've been on the flag stand with you since even before then. So, yes. But, you know, I always told you I didn't want you to run a flag stand until you were out of high school so that they could not say some punk kid on the flag stand cost me the race. At that point, if you were 18, you were a legal adult, correct? Right. I, I made you work for it until you became 18. And then at that point, I had enough faith in what you did as a flagman. I could suggest you for this location or the other location or whichever track that I knew you could work at. And the coolest ones was the Alabama State championship race weekend in 2016 that me and you both got to work together. Did some race directing for that and you did some of the flagging. I did some of the flagging too so it was it was definitely a real cool deal for me. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was cool growing up because it went from being, you know, just standing on the flag stand because it was cool to helping you flag because long races trying to keep you on the same count i'll watch one and two and you watch three and four i'll hit you in the back when a caution's going on stuff like that and and then eventually working with you from in, in my headset um so we've always had a really good working relationship i guess to the outside but it's been kind of rocky between you and i because we butt heads a lot and uh and I don't know if you want to say anything about that, but it's really interesting because people always compliment me when I do it. You flag just as good as your dad, or you you do this like your dad, and you and your dad working so well together. But really, we'll be yelling at each other on the radio. Uh, as funny as that sounds, it's 100% correct, all you listeners. I mean, we can be going at each other on the radio like cats and dogs, but we... When I'm in the tower and he's on the flag stand, we do darn this to get the show done, get it done properly, but right way. You know, the cars ain't nothing but a car with a number on top. You know, that's one of the one things I have always tried to instill in you and myself is 
and let nobody's name show up on the side of that roof. Let a name show up on the side of the roof. It'll come back to haunt you one day. Yeah. Denny Hamlin shows up to my racetrack. He's just, just one of the other guys, so he's just going to have to suck it up because he ain't getting nothing from me. And because of that one fact, I mean, I've had the local here in LaGrange people that raced that were mad at me for a month or so because I didn't treat them the way that they think I should have treated them just because I know them. Um, so at some points, you know, you do it far enough, you're going to have those same situations, but I don't think you'll have it nowhere near as much as I did because I've done it for so long and you do it more periodically and sporadically where most of the guys and gals that are racing don't know you as that guy from that track. They just hear the Harrington and they, they, they just probably assume it's you to be honest. Cause I, I've had that happen. Uh, when I was race directing at, at, uh, East Alabama, last year or the year before last whenever that was i had uh i I really got aggressive with some of the guys um in one of the series because they were they were making a a real fool of my racetrack and um i get a little bit staunch when when i'm in control which i don't know i just that's kind of the way you kind of raise me as as it's gonna go this way or or it's no way at all because we're trying to put on a good show for the fans. So I kind of did that, and I hear people saying this, that, and the other, and and uh, the guy that was down there was like, uh, "No, that that's not Chad Harrington. That was his son." And and they started fighting and stuff like that, arguing between themselves. And you know, I can hear them uh, talking on the cell phone after a show, and and, <laughs> and I just put it on speakerphone. I said, "Look." You might as well be dealing with my dad because I don't, I don't put up with that crap. And he found me on Facebook after that, and it was a whole deal. But I got it all straightened out. So, I don't know. They hear that Harrington name, and they get a little bit scared, I guess. Well, after a few run-ins or so, depending on who it is, so I, I black flagged quite a few in my time, and people didn't like it. most famous one is, Black flag I give Billy um, Duell at one of the races because he decided he didn't want to go to the back after he spun somebody out and they told him to go to the back and we wouldn't give him his spot back. I pulled the black flag out and pointed at him and he decided he was going to do a 360 donut burnout and he pulled up the flag stand and wanted to give me a bird. So I pulled the black flag out and waved it at him and waved bye-bye. Um, I had one way back when to where and had been racing 40 something years, never been black flag, but these two had done hit each other like four or five times. I said, that's enough. Y'all get off my racetrack. I got off the flag stand, went and black flag, both of them come up to me at the end of the night. He said, I know you was just doing what you had to do, but I just want you to know I had never been black flag until tonight. That's what you always taught me. It's, it's your racetrack. You got to have them guys do what you think is right. So, I mean, that's... yeah, that's really interesting to me, at least, because I want to know for um, rental carts, I want to know what's the best way to deal with the officials, because I've never really dealt with officiating before up until this year. And I want to know what to do 
so that I don't get into all these situations because I, I hear all the stories about you know drivers losing their minds against officials and I'm just trying to see what I can do to um, to make sure that the officials don't look at me as a problem if that makes sense. Well, the best advice I can give you is not on NASCAR's level. You're not on Lucas Oil Dirt Lake model level. You're not traveling around asphalt world like Bubba Pollard is. All of these big races like the Oxford 250 and you know, the Rattler, the Alabama 200, and some of these other and some of these other big asphalt races. So you're not out there to make money, right? Remember, it's right. a hobby. Remember, it's a hobby. Mm-hmm. It's something you're doing because you love it. Number two would be how once an official speaks a word, that official's word is what the ruling is. At that point, it's not really going to get overturned. If it does get overturned, it's going to be, I'm sorry, at the end of the race because at that point, the official is thinking he's in the rule one way because of the way he read it. Whether it's right or wrong, he just enforced that rule. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. It can also help you. It's like, okay, well, they are still thinking that they're going to be enforced the way that they're used to. Sometimes that happens. Not really the fact to get steamed about it. But, you know, even me, what I do designing math, I'll tell you right now, six ways to design something in Illustrator get to the same end result. Well, the same thing goes for the officiating. If you got six people reading the rule book, you're going to get six different interpretations, right? Right, exactly. At the the end, or or five of those are going to end up the right way, and one of them is going to end up the wrong way. And and I'm sorry, but at some point, human error can catch somebody in the wrong way instead of the right way. And uh, Nathan, being that you're in rental carts, um, I'll kind of echo some of what my dad said, but you're not necessarily going to have uh, a race director, per se, right. being the end-all, be-all. Like, that's, for us being short track officiators, that's what we're going to do most of the time. That's what it is. And if we're wrong, we'll apologize, we'll have a discussion, and if you're civil, nobody's going to get mad, everybody's going to be, you know, walk out with with the next week so officiating is going to be a little bit better and the next week's driving from that person is going to be a little bit better but with rental carts you're going to have marshals that may be rotating oh, yeah. in and out you might have marshals that have never done it before you might have some that have bad habits from being there for 20 years yeah exactly so guess, that's one my point Go yeah ahead. so so for you it would be something where understand the rules as best as you can and don't get too heated if something like that happens. Oh, yeah. Pull 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 Marshall, you know, three off to the side and say, Hey, you know, you didn't give the blue flag to this guy and I was coming up and he sent me off the track and that's why I lost that race. You've got to do a better job. Well, if you do it like that, you'll be heated. Right. Just pull him to the side and say, Hey man, um, I was wondering if you saw what happened between me and the when and the eighteen cart? You know, he kind of pushed me off the track, but he was he was let down. I, I think you should have been with a blue flag. I mean, did you see it that way? And then start a discussion like that because you're not you're not necessarily working with 
seasoned veterans mm-hmm. or even people that are that passionate about what they're doing. They might just be hanging out on a Saturday afternoon because they think racing go-karts is cool. So, and then as you, as you progress your racing career, like, you know, let's say you get into an MX-5 cup car eventually or something like that. The same is kind of still there for marshals. Not always are they anything but volunteers. So once you go up the ladder, you'll have to deal with different stuff and stuff like that. But, I mean, as a general rule, just be respectable. Because the right. guys that my dad and I deal with are, are, are usually the ones we remember are, are not respectable. Yeah, that's my um, that's definitely my number one goal is to build a reputation as somebody that doesn't really – start any problems with the officials because I feel like the less you keep your temper in check, the more problems you're going to have, the more, the less likely people are going to want to actually see where you're coming from. Well, I'll also add to, and I will thank my former boss at Sonora, he's massive for this. He always told you in the driver's meeting, If you've got a problem with an official, you got a problem with another driver, whether you're heated or mad or just ready to ready to fight, back to your trailer and stay there. Calm down. Call them on the next day. Better yet, wait a complete full day and then call them the day after. Um. <clears throat> You know, in your case, like Alex and yourself have discussed, you know, you might have a corner worker that could have done something a little different that could have cost you something. Well, at the end of the night, you know, hey, can I get your phone number? I'd like to talk to you about something that in the next day or two. And also go get the race director or the flagman's phone number at the same time so that you can ask both of them. Give, your time, give yourself some time to lost one of one of the worst things that could do be get home from racing go to bed at 2 30 in the morning lo and behold that guy you pissed off because he went to the back because he was involved in a wreck besides he's gonna text you or call you at 8 a.m on a sunday morning you think you're still going to be in a position to talk with that person at 8 a.m. knowing you've gotten four or five hours worth of sleep? Oh, definitely not. As an official, you don't want to talk to that guy. Oh, wait till after lunch. Maybe I'll talk to you. Wait till after dinner. Yeah, I'll talk to you. That's a, probably around the time that it happened. It's 24 hours. Me time to reflect, and if I need to, Somebody's going to have videos that I can go back and look. So I've got 24 hours of looking back at something to where I can really say, yeah, I screwed up or no. Got to remember the vantage point I'm sitting at. It didn't look nothing like what, what that camera view was. And, you know, you've only got a split second to make a call. At that point, if you know that I'm not looking at the same view you are, know what what can i explain it that to make it any different mm-hmm. but it's definitely that that well, time that time helps yeah definitely that's my um that's basically my number one goal is to 
be even keel throughout the whole year because I've never really been somebody that's uh, outwardly expressive. So I've kind of just maintained a good reputation and keep a good um, a good image. Yeah, and that, I mean, for someone like you, Nathan, that should be totally easy. Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing is going to be, you know, as you progress with what you're doing, is getting into it with other drivers and stuff like that. Because, um, you know, emotions are high. Oh, Hotheads right. exist. And, and when you don't mm -hmm. have the pressure like the professionals do um, to maintain a level head, uh, a lot of people don't. So I, I, I don't know that you'll have too much um, problem being not a problem for a marshal or, or a race director or what you're doing. I think you might, might have more problems with, with other racers. And, um, so keeping a level head when someone's, you know, just jawing at you and yelling at you because you, you made a mistake that that's going to be the biggest issue. Um, which I'll be honest, it's hard for me, but I'm still young. So I got, I got a little, a little bit of learning to do on mellowing out on that myself. Yeah, it's definitely nice to see it from an officiating perspective because you never, I'm never used to seeing how they see things and vice versa. So it's just uh, not really an issue on my part, more as, it, more as it is trying to learn your perspective so that I can understand where you're coming from more often. Well, if you're ever in the Atlanta area on a Thursday in the month of June, if you'll let me know. I will let you come sit in the tower with me while we officiate the entire deal for a Thursday Thunder race at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Hmm. Well, definitely, uh, if I could take you up on that offer, I definitely will in the future. It just depends on my plans. Okay, well, we'll have to see what uh, what all uh, we've got going forward in the next mm -hmm few months and maybe we can make something like that happen but uh moving on uh my dad uh he's kind of worn a lot of different hats so we went through his racing career but he's also got a little bit more than meets the eye he's not just been a, an official um he mentioned earlier that he's he's a designer and um he's working for a mac company right now but, but chad you started painting cars when you were working at the print shop and that led to i guess where you are today uh professionally in your actual career and not just your hobby career of officiating well that is true my uncle had a car back in the late 80s and the 90s my dad worked on it and crewed on it we kept it at our house and uncle paid $300 to have a car lettered the first time. And he knew what kind of artist I was. He said, Chad, I will never pay that much money to have somebody do that again. He said, I will buy you. And my dad said, I will help him buy you all of the tools you need so that you can paint these cars for me. Well, I started hand lettering these cars. You talking about tough? Sometimes that is the toughest stuff you could ever do, because you're stenciling out stuff, drawing stuff freehand on the cars, and then you're coming back and littering with a brush. It's nothing like designing something on the computer. It is a totally different skill. 
I never got into the pinstriping and stuff like some of these guys get into when it comes to the motorcycles and some of these street rods and stuff like that, which those guys just had incredible talent. All I was asked to do was write a, write a few names in cursive and do some numbers and make them look good and make the sponsors look good on the side. So, were you actually getting paid, or did they just buy you the paint and stuff? Because that seems oh, like no. you went from being $300 for a paint job to you getting a little bit of screwed by just getting uh, experience, as it were. Well, let's just say that the experience that I got led to being gigs because... I did not have the experience to be charging three to four to six hundred dollars for these things. I could charge a hundred and fifty, two hundred dollars. And that gives me more cars to letter. Um I probably lettered probably about fifteen or twenty cars over the course of four or five year period. Um and some yard signs and stuff like that. It's not per se the fact of, you know, the family didn't pay. Family helped got what I did started. But you could almost say they planted the seed for me so that I could do it and get paid for it. But I got to hone my skills for free and design as I wanted to on my uncle's car. Yeah, and he had that, uh, I guess... Locally famous orange 101 car. So you're telling me you're the one that painted all that stuff on it? Because this is all new to me. I, I never knew about any of this. As far as I can remember is you were painting cars right before you started designing them um, with well, vinyl when I was a kid. And when I got to do his cars, his he took the 101 off because one of the scoreboards would actually show one they were all double digits right mm -hmm. so never knew if he was the 10 or the zero one he took the first one off so he would know that he was the zero one on the scoreboard if he was on the scoreboard that's when i started lettering his cars um it's, it's kind of hard to say other than two, I also learned how to spray paint a car out in the yard too with a with an actual air gun sprayer, which I had never used before because if he tore a fender up, oh so my dad had helped me keep it up to where I could then learn to spray. Um and that too incorporated the fact that I was able to use an airbrush and end up painting a bunch of slot car bodies because you helped me with those too when them around in the house and after I take them up to take down the stairs and paint with an airbrush but had I not learned how to paint then I probably would have never ever used my airbrush so uh, speaking of the slot car racing um I remember you using because you had the vinyl cutter I remember using the vinyl cutter and we would we would make designs, you would spray paint, you'd use that to mask off stuff, you'd take it off and spray paint more stuff like that. 
is that the reason you got the vinyl cutter, or did you get that to to start doing the the big cars? Because I I mean I'm kind of cloudy in in remembering all this because I was so little. Oh, you know, hand lettering started going out because of the vinyl cutter. You know, it's just one of those signs of the time. For the same price, you can get so much more in vinyl put on your race car than you could for the time and the experience you could get hand lettering done. So the vinyl cutter basically put their hand sign painters basically out of business for the most part. And then now that you got the wrap machines where everybody prints everything, it's basically put the vinyl cutters out of business. Because you hardly ever see a car now that uses nothing but a wrap, and you see them all the time. Cup, they'll especially Joe Gibbs will show you how quick a quick uh, time lapse goes, and they put a wrap on the car. Used to. Well, the most simple things were the fact that they would do the paint jobs and then they'd come lay one layer of vinyl like the 24 and the DuPont on the side and then they'd get, take it back in there and clear coat on top of it. But they actually had vinyl cutters for that. I actually got into it right when the wrap machines were coming out and they were so expensive but the price of the vinyl cutters plummeted at that point because the technology was on its way. I sort of bit, I, I was sort of able to catch on, ride it like a wave, grab a bunch of money with the vinyl cutter as a business just for lettering the race cars and did it here in LaGrange locally for quite a few people. And I was lucky enough that able to go to Cartersville. I mean, Martin had a vinyl cutter, and I'd take my vinyl cutter up there. He had two cars, so I would cut one or on one thing for both cars, cut one color, different color on my vinyl cutter for both cars, weed them, and then I would put the vinyl on both cars at the same time. And because I did that up there, I had that Cartersville and Rome crew to where I was able to do back and forth quite a bit. And I had two areas that I serviced basically with. Yeah, and I vaguely remember that. I remember um, he gave me a t-shirt. I, I think I still got it rolled up in a box somewhere um, from from those days when you were going up to Rodney Shop and doing that. And uh, that was really cool. But... um you know, you went from small time to now you're big time. Uh, I guess kind of describe your job a little bit and then describe how you finagled your way to have NASCAR involved with your job. Because now you're designing still and you're designing with NASCAR drivers, but you're, you're, you're doing it a little bit different way than putting it on the car. Well, so I used to work clean techs started there designing mats and then asked if any of us wanted to work from home and I offered me and um, see if it was a good idea I talked with one of the other employees she had just had a baby so that she 
could still work at home and I could work at home. And we wouldn't have that many people in the office at that point. So we became contractors. And through all of that's where I got my mad experience. And then I jumped into design work at Millican for Hospitality, where we did the 3D and the 2D visuals, where it'd be like in a CAD file and you're putting the carpet in the entire facility showing them what that whole carpet would look like if once it was seamed together and everything so that we're not talking just the hallway we're talking about the big meeting areas and if you go down to like the Orlando World Marriott I mean you're talking about a ballroom that's probably 30,000 square feet and it's got tile in it and we show them what all of that looks like it before they actually order the actual mat just by the design pieces that they've got working on i had the option to go back into mats and i decided to take it because i enjoyed working with the mats and the logos probably a little more with the than i did the concept work and the kind of the um fit in the facilities but it all goes back to, you know, at certain points, worked my way up, started doing some stuff. And every other year we have a show. It's called Clean Show. So I'd go to these um, shows and show off some really cool artwork and everything. Then I started watching and being that I'm working at Atlanta Motor Speedway and so they give me certain access when I get to go. So I get through some of these things and I see, start looking in these haulers and it's like, well, there's nothing there. I've got a solution for that. But I didn't think that I could get into it straight up by walking up to somebody like Richard Childress or Rick Hendrick and saying, hey, I want to put mats in your um, hauler. Um, went the, I went the little guy route. Um, Jeremy Clements used to work, I mean, race super late models. And he, 2005, he was at East Alabama for the National 100. I'll never forget the whole deal. And that's where we met the first time, met his dad, Tony. And was he qualified fifth overall, so he was starting on the pole of the fifth heat race. And he's coming around. We've been giving him the one to go, flash the lights on and off, going through one and two and turn them off halfway down the back straightaway. Entering turn three, he starts looking at his dad. Never looks at me. By the time he gets there, I guess his dad winks at him or something. He never looks at me, and then, bam, there we go. We're off the green. After that, we kidded about it probably 2013 or 2014, somewhere in there, at the Xfinity race there. And so I kept saying, man, I need to get you some math. And all of a sudden just dawned on me. If I can get Matt's in here, Jeremy, I mean, he's only four miles away from our corporate office. So I arranged a meeting with our then VP, or 
is our head of our division, and we go sit down with marketing and whatnot and work out a, a deal to do that. And through him, he has he has sent me based on the mats that he's had in his truck, which look better than anybody else's mats because the design level, because I've done so much work on the race car designs and so forth, just put him on a whole new level. He's, he's actually had a few extra sponsors because of that. And the way the mats look um, was an awesome deal. And then next person up was uh, Timmy Hill. And we got him hooked up, and he, he was really wanting them before the, the all 19, I mean, truck and cup weekend up there. So we made sure he got his stuff. He gets up there Wednesday. He has a bunch of people up there. He, he gets a sponsorship that committed to him because of the way that he put the mats in the hauler. And they look so much more professional having those kind of mats in there to look more like a true 100% race team instead of just a mom and pop organization. I love the fact that I was able to help Timmy do that. Since then, we've added um, Anderson and Joe Martin's the most recent one. And it was really, really cool. I was texting and talking with Tommy Joe, Jeremy, and Gordon Anderson Saturday morning before all of the truck racing and everything started. And I see Timmy Hill as well. It, it was it was a real cool deal because they were in my hometown state for the hometown race and here I am. My phone's blowing up and mom's saying, well, Who's that? Who's that? Who is that? Now it it was cool to say that it was all those guys that I was supposed to go see race and they were talking back and forth with me. Yeah. Now comes to the now comes to the cool part is that I do some work for Jeremy off to the side. I'm able to help him do his banners and pit box banners that he gets to hang pit wall and on his pit box. He I've already got to see him at one set in person. I've got to see the rest of them on TV. I mean, it was kind of cool. I mean, I hated that he, he got his pit banner on TV by having a pull can stuck in the nozzle hole. He drug it out of his pit box, but it was cool to see my banner on the, on the feed on the way home. Yeah, and through your access with uh, Atlanta and, mm-hmm. and knowing all these other guys like that, uh, You've actually made it to where I've been able to meet some of these guys, and and Jordan Anderson is one that sticks out because he and his dad actually invited us to his hauler and offered us drinks and stuff that one time, uh, the last time that fans were allowed uh, up there uh, at Atlanta in the garage, and and it was really cool to be able to to see that these guys not only are you know, down to earth, despite being guys that we watch on TV all the time, but they know you and they extended their hospitality, uh, to me and, and my fiance because they knew my dad and, and that was, it was pretty, pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's, it's not every day, but it does 
it does make me happy and a proud dad that I'm able to do that and share that with other people. It's not just my son and your fiance that I get to do that to. No, I get to take some people to races. I mean, they never would have ever had some sort of that access without me. And it just makes me very happy to see that. I mean, my dad, he got his first trip through garage like that. And it it tickled me to death to see him that way. Because he actually got Richard Childress autograph, but he was like a five-year-old kid. He was so excited. He really didn't want to walk up. I thought he was. I thought he was fishing to crap himself. But he finally walked up to him and got his autograph. And I think, you know, just a day like that, it just makes their day when they get something like that. Or you take a picture in the garage and you send it to one of your buddies that couldn't be there because they live so far out of state, and. And then they said, oh, can I use that for an Instagram post? And you give, I said, just make sure that you give me full photo credit on that and you can share it as much as you like. And that happens with, you know, my buddy Danny's son, Jake. Times being, I get to send all the stuff to them too because it's cool. Yeah, and uh, speaking of the way that I guess – Pop acted with Richard Childress that time. Uh, I had my own little starstruck moment once uh, as well, and I guess you can speak to more to this, but uh, it was after, geez, I I had mop head at that point, so it was probably 2011 or 2010 uh, with, with Travis Estrana in the Xfinity garage. You were... It, it was your was the fall of your senior year in high school because I'll never forget it. Look on your face and I had access to get in the garage and I told the security guard said, Travis Pastrana's over there. My son's right here. He don't have access. I got to get him in here to meet him. He said, go right ahead. So, took you and my dad in there and waited around and and all of a sudden had a break and told you to go he said i don't want to go let's go now go now he walked up shy as all could be and that was like his hero i mean he had just met his hero and he didn't know what to say all of a sudden travis pastrana broke the ice asked him a question next thing you know stood there for 15 minutes talking I got one good photograph and the cool part was that photograph in the senior memory show you should have heard the crowd say when they saw that picture with Alex Travis Pastrana there you just know you did something really well you hear a reaction like that memory that lasts forever yeah and uh, I believe the first thing uh, I said to him was uh I couldn't say nothing, but dude, you're ridiculous or something like that. I have no idea what you said to him. I just know you were wide eyed and your smile went from ear to ear. If your ears wouldn't have stopped it, it would have been bigger. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that's come full circle. We'll have to get Nathan up to an Atlanta race, uh, here soon before anything happens to it. 
Yeah, that'd definitely be pretty fun. It's just interesting hearing these stories because I'm sure for you guys now, it's probably no big deal considering you've known drivers now and gotten to know drivers, but I'm sure at that point it definitely wasn't. Oh, no, definitely not for me. I mean, you know, I got to the point where we would get extra tickets or whatnot because he was working for AMS, so we'd get some people you know down front um during a pre-race concert and stuff like that and go walk around pit road and go to the driver stuff trying to act cool and stuff and then here comes denny hamlin and i start screaming mm -hmm. like a little girl after uh i say two words to him and he walks away so <laughs> yeah and no at the same time <laughs> uh, alex has a tendency to not be able to control <laughs> emotions when he meets his heroes like Benny or Travis. But I will say this. One of the coolest moments I had was when I was doing the newspaper stuff and I was able to get into the garages. Alex's mom to Talladega once. And of course, she had her own stuff and she went to she did and was in line for a porta potty and, and right beside her or right behind her was Richard Childress. They struck up a conversation. And mom went to get an autograph from Sterling Marlin, which was, I mean, you can't get no more country and nice than Sterling. And she said, you to know out of all things my husband decided he was going to name my son after you his name is marlon alexander and got the biggest kick out of that according to her sorry you be, alex you ain't gotta be telling everybody the the first name we on that basis because you see nathan what had happened was see nobody <laughs> knew that marlon came from racing right and my my mm -hmm. granddad pop he always made fun of me he said i think that that your dad named you after cuckoo marlin you know sterling's daddy because it's funny yeah because cuckoo marlin but no about 2006 comes around or maybe it was 2004 yeah it was 2004 comes around i'm in third and fourth grade at this point and a in a in a movie comes out out of nowhere the people down at at Disney Pixar decided that they want to call a damn clownfish Marlin. And from the time that that movie got released until about my ninth grade year, once I got, you know, through all of the iterations of new people that you meet because you go to middle school and high school, Where's Nemo was the only question that I got for my childhood from, from about third grade to ninth grade so that was a a long six years of my life and yeah, and then yeah. it stirred up again in college when finding dory came out so mm -hmm. yeah so that was rough unforeseen consequences so thanks dad and thanks uh disney <laughs> yeah it's an interesting story though in all t in all technicality it's actually a celtic name it's okay well, you had mentioned something earlier about slot car racing, and I guess another thing that I'd like to 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 talk about was the fact that uh, you're an official, you're an official, you're now designing stuff for 
for professional race teams, and um, you're also a national champion slot car racer. Um, so I guess more history that involves me. Um, do you want to kind of just get into the hobbies that racing has got into our lives with? Uh, first being slot car racing. Yeah, slot car racing is kind of fun. Oh, I actually did it Friday night. The first time since before your sister hit a volleyball on a travel court. You know, because I quit at that point. So, crazy as that sounds, it took a while to get used to. Um, But it brought back a bunch of fun memories as well. Because... It's the equivalent of having a rigid chassis, just like a go-kart, where you you only have minimal things you can do to it, but it really doesn't affect the handling like you think it would. Those rental carts you've got, they're going to have a lot of different things that you can change on it, but a slot car has only got two rubber tires. The back, with with the axle, the rest of it rides on that guide flag. I went from finished third in my first ever traveling series race that came to LaGrange and that was pretty cool and then I said well we need to do some more of this stuff and the next thing I know my mom and dad actually bought the slot car track and keep going and start traveling to different races about once a month and I've traveled as far as Philadelphia to race in a national championship race and I mean there's tracks that they build out of wood they're in so many different shapes and forms and speed depending on how quickly you can adapt to it just like a road course depends on how well you're going to do that event they got all sorts of different motors for them and everything like that. It didn't take long for me to be one of the guys that they always had to beat. And most of the time at the beginning, you know, I was a Denny Hamlin racer. I beat myself. It wasn't because of speeding on pit road. It was that I did dumb stuff at the end of the race and never could pull that trigger. Well, I like how you're taking a shot at me and Nathan like we're not. Yeah, I know. I'm tall for it. <laughs> well, you know, I got to pick on you a little bit. I had to do it the nicest way I knew how, and that was through Denny. I wouldn't be flaming that guy right now. He's He's been added on Twitter the past couple weeks. Yeah, but he don't know who I am or I'm safe. You go back to his career, Leon, he was that way. I mean, you have to learn how to race. You just can't be fast. I was fast. Didn't learn how to race. Once I learned how to race, I started winning more. Thus, I started building a lot more of my stuff. And building of my own chassis and stuff like that, Alex will tell you that the difference in what somebody puts down in front of you and for me to put one of mine down in front of you could be the difference in Attempts to a half a second faster, depending on what track it was at. 
he would be that fast depending on where he was because he was fast. As a kid, he was fast. I mean, they they played video games so crazily. His hand-eye coordination was faster than mine, but he was not consistent. So I was like eight when we started this, so at least give me a little credit. Like I said, you were fast, dude. I mean, there was no no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You were fast. But, again, you had to learn how to race. The good part was you didn't have to race against us all the time. Um, You actually won a national title for the junior division in the upper age group one year, and your sister actually won it the year after you because you had actually um, gotten one year too old to be in it. So cool part is you got three generations of slot car national titles. My dad actually has won one. I've won five, and both Alex and Christy have both won one apiece. But it was so ti- it was so time consuming though. It 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 would take up just as much time for one monthly event the rest of the month just to get ready. You know, sadly, that hobby's just falling off the map, and I don't know, probably it's due to the invent of a really good sim racing and stuff like that, because uh, it's more convenient to race more people and stuff like that, and you got a little bit more going on uh, with control rather than just throttle and off-throttle with the slot car like you would, and then I know RC racing's making a comeback now, which is interesting, so... And my, my buddy Eddie, he does a lot of RC racing. That you know he, you know that was my traveling mate when it comes to slot car racing. And got two cool short stories for you on on this. Is way back when I won my fourth and fifth national titles, he had gotten so flustered at dr- driving the slot cars and building them and stuff like that. And I told him home for a few months. Don't show back up until the nap. Said, Do what? I said, yeah, don't come back to another race. I said, I got you. He shows up on a Thursday night. I said, I'm going to dinner. Here's the key. Lock the door. Here's the code. Stay in here. Lock some laps with this chassis. Do not touch any other chassis. This chassis. So, uh, when I got done eating and come back, it must have been about 1 o'clock, I went to Waffle House and come back. Then I had to prep the track for mats the next morning. He practiced. He said, man, this thing's fast. I said, dude, you're a half second slow. He said, do what? Half second slow. I said, I got you in the morning. People don't even know you're here till in the morning. He said, okay. Come in about an hour after everybody. It was an hour before the race started, first race. Give him a chassis, put his motor in. Said, Here's the body you're going to run. Said, it. So I, I, I zeroed his lane out. He drove it one lap. I said, it blinked. He said, yep. It blinked. He said, yep. It blinked. He said, yep. Blink three times in a row, I made him stop it in the high bank so I could pick it up. And I said, you see what you ran? He looked down. Right as, he, right as he looked down and got a glimpse, I zeroed the time out. I didn't want nobody to see it. 
was already a half second faster than everybody else. He had only run three laps. He said, man, I need more laps for this. I said, no, you don't. Ended up winning his first and only national title. Take that back, first of two national titles because he won two that year. A 32 laps over second place. Now we move forward. Man still calls me for technical advice, whether it's racing with a big car, racing with a slot car, or racing with the RC cars. I worked with him on some chassis setup things this year and actually won, the, I think they call them the Mud Boss Modifieds. Um, those are pretty sharp. He's going to send me one of the bodies that he run the championship with that I can that I can have here, put in the race room and hang it from the uh, ceiling. And uh, he credits that championship with he he was able to turn in the corners better, get drive off better, all because of some technical advice I give him for his front end. Nobody else knew what had happened. Nobody else could see it. Only I could pick it up in the photos of what was going wrong. I fixed it, helped him fix it over the phone over two nights. After that, it was all done. Went out there and placed in the top two in all but one race, and he finished third. One half of the ones he finished first and second with. All right, there he had. It's not just racing per se for that as much as I know a lot about it. I don't know as much as most, but I know a lot about it to get people steered in one direction or another. Now, I would not be good at a big car by any means whatsoever. It comes to the super late models or create late models or the late model style chassis. But, you know, just my insight in some of that stuff will the brain tinkering in a certain way and it, it's really helped him because we used to throw ideas back and forth. We used to talk at the racetracks, dirt lingo, nobody would understand what we were talking about because we would use dirt late model terms to describe our cars on the slot car track. We would name our chassis based on the type of chassis. It might have been a champion turbo flex but we called them rockets. Um, you know, it it we just we just had a different chassis name for each one of the cars, and we had a GRT. It was a Cheetah Seven. I mean, it was it was kind of cool the way that we did stuff, so nobody would understand what we talked about, and we could just see and know what the other person was wanting to do. It almost feels like we're sitting here listening to a Dale Jr. download episode, don't it? No, it really does. It's like there's a lot of stories. Yeah, I mean, most of this stuff, uh, I'll be honest with you guys. I think I was in, what, seventh grade when we went to Gatlinburg with with Daniel and Christian. Oh, that, was your, that was your that was your junior year of high school, after your junior year of high school. Yeah, you moved the Rocky Mountains when you slipped on that yeah. rock and cracked the snot out of it with your head, dude. Yeah, later on we've discussed it. I think I have a 
had a concussion syndrome. that year, and I can't remember most of anything past, like, 2010, so, so I'm learning a lot, I guess relearning a lot of what happened while I was there, and watching from afar, or being close to a lot of this action, uh, but, I don't know, man, you're a man of many hats, um, and, uh, I say that to say, uh, it's, it's kind of astonishing, kind of relearning some of this stuff, because, it's almost like I'm sitting in the in the back listening to to stories from somebody I don't even know, uh, just because of the fact that I can't remember most of this stuff. But uh, Nathan, I guess I, I hope you've enjoyed what we've been when talking about. But um, we got one more subject that I kind of want to talk about with my dad. But mm -hmm. I'll let you start off because I think um, uh, something that most of us get into is collecting stuff and i've got a little bit of collection of my own um i got some 124 scale cars uh just added uh peter max uh dale earnhardt 124 scale a, a, man. a couple of weeks ago and um so i'm i'm really happy about that but uh nathan uh how big is your collection and what you what kind of cool stuff do you have i would probably say I got about 25 or 30 die casts and my favorite of those are probably the three um, Hamlin Daytona 500 wins. Um, I do have a couple of Davey Allison and Alan Kalicki posters in my closet. They were in pretty rough condition when they were given to us, but which is why I don't take them out of the closet. I don't want any more light damage or all that kind of stuff on them. So, but aside from that, I'd probably say the most valuable single item I do have is the uh, Fernando Alonso autographed half-scale helmet. Um, we paid quite a portion for it. And just I don't even want to imagine what the full scale would cost, but it's easily my most prized possession when it comes to the collection. And To be honest, I don't think I'm ever getting rid of it. I don't think I would. That's pretty, yeah, no, pretty awesome, it, man. The story I do have that's pretty interesting is that there was a um, a kid that moved into a big house down here at my school. This new kid and apparently had a lot of money. I'm not sure how, but he moved into a house that Nigel Mansell used to live in when I was a little kid. And when he moved in there, he was in my school. And I was like, you do realize that like, you, you live in a house where celebrities used to live in, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, there's, you know, there's a bunch of old racing helmets in my in my closet and stuff from the previous owner of the house. And I, I kind of missed this opportunity because I didn't know how much it was worth at the time. And I could have easily went over there and bought one off of him for a cheap price. And last week I look online and a Nigel Mansell helmet sold for $35,000. So Holy crap, man. It's like, imagine if I could have bought one of those for like a hundred or $200. <laughs> yeah. That's a solid <laughs> that investment. That would have been the steal of the century. That that, yeah. that 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 is incredible. That's almost like knowing that your great granddad uh, had the opportunity to buy a cola stock and said, "Nah, they won't ever make it." Yeah, I was I was probably <laughs> in sixth or seventh grade at the time, so I didn't really know much about Nigel Mansell or know how much his helmets were worth. And, you know, I never I never really, at that point was into historic racing, and 
I'm looking at this nowadays and I'm like, man, I wish that kid still lived there because I could have just gone over there. It's like, hey, you still want this stuff? I could buy it for you. And I mean, he was one of my favorites. Yeah. Because he used to live about t- five, uh, he used to live a couple hundred yards down the street from the hospital I was born in. There's a really big house down here on the beach where he used to come here as a vacation home when he wasn't racing before out well before I was born. But the kid I knew lived there for only a couple of years and before he moved out, it's like, man, I wish he still lived there because I could have I could have gone back for what I missed. Yep. And even though it's expensive, I don't think I ever would have sold that thing based on how valuable those are. <laughs> no. So I'm like, I absolutely not. I don't think you never get a chance to have that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's like if I ever uncovered something like a, a race winning helmet from right. any driver or something like that, uh that that's probably got more sentiment than it does uh price tag. Like, yeah, I could sell this for a couple of thousand dollars, but to say that I've got something that was worn in a race that somebody won is is much more, I guess, pleasing than the money that it's worth. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely. I'd, I would just want that as a, a man cave item of some sort. It's like, imagine saying, oh, you know, this guy, this helmet won so-and-so Grand Prix, and it's like, I, you're never going to get a chance to buy these things. Or remember, Alex, you know, that time that uh, we had a hockey game and Richard Petty showed up and it was just happened to be race weekend and I took my checkered flag and green flag for him to actually use because he officiated a four wheels on ice race. He started it with my green flag and he ended it with my checkered flag and he signed both of them and they're both sitting on a shelf and I mean, this is just awesome. He used them and he signed them. So the whole story is the fact that those will never get sold because they were my flags just used that same day and he used them that night. Yeah, I would never sell anything with my collection. I mean, that, that's even something that's personal to you. So that's like a unique item and it's not even... To the same vein as, you know, when you got Denny Hamlin to sign my 2016 Daytona 500 win diecast. Like, he's probably signed a million of those. How many people can say that they have flags that they use signed by anybody, much less the King? I don't know, but Kenny, Kenny Wallace still owes me one from when he won that uh, Shriners race up at uh... – or juvenile diabetes race at uh, Cleveland, Tennessee on that Thursday night. You got a Twitter? He's active on there. I have tweeted him so many times. I sent him a message and still hadn't got an answer for where to send that flag to. And it, every so often he puts that picture up where he's got the checkered flag at the car. You can see me in the background. Sorry, Joker. We'll get it signed one day, though. It's crazy. I just wish that I would have known the worth of that helmet at the time because I, I feel if I could have got something worth more than a car for a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. 
I mean, you just got to keep your eye out for stuff like that because some yeah, people I, don't know what they I, have, man. I actually forgot about that instance until on one of the websites listed, you know, Nigel Mansell, nice 89 helmet that won. I think he wore it in two races that he won, one of which in 1989. And he said that the helmet autograph, or it was auto, it wasn't autographed. It was race worn, everything like that. It wasn't redone. It was untouched. $35,000 was the highest bid. And it's like, like man, in the helmet, at the, the one, the helmet that I was looking at that he did have, I asked him like, yeah, what, well, what kind of helmet is it? And he's like, oh yeah, it had cannon on it. And I was like, okay, the sponsorship, that was one of the helmets when he was at Williams that I missed out on. Well, I know I got quite a few of Alex's big cars here with me, but you know, me and him actually have a pretty extensive collection of collectibles here. I have got a four foot by eight foot back set up. And right now I have Eclipse 270 164 scale haulers. Wow. Most of them have at least three 164 scale cars on or in them. Now, I think I last have, time I counted, you probably have over 2,000 164 scale cars. Well, easy. Got a few customs that I've had made. Um, got four of the acrylic cabinets that hold seventy something a piece or forty eight or something like that a piece on them, and it's just unreal. And there's a butt ton that are still in boxes that I've got duplicates and duplicates of. And you're right, sometimes you can find some of these on Facebook Marketplace or eBay, and these people do not know what they have. And right. next thing you know, I spent like, Alex remembers this, I believe, because he was here. I might have spent $150 on, on three or four different auction items. One four of them, one of the nine I was trying to get. I spent more to have it shipped than I paid for the stuff I spent on the stuff itself from Michigan. When it come in, I started unboxing some of the stuff. His eyes almost bounced off the floor. I mean, we're talking one twenty-four. I mean, one sixty-four scale Rob Moroso in the like the cigar box for Swisher Sweets. They only made so many of those in that box where they were the two-car set. Some of the older older cars that you can't find, I even got a set of the, that was the first time we discovered that Hooters had a four-car set out for the Hooters USAR mm-hmm. um, series. Did not know those existed until that box I opened them. Yeah, but your centerpiece is the racetrack, and that kind of leads to the um, conversation I've been alluding to for a little bit since we started the podcast. Um, uh, We race races on your racetrack, as one does. We roll dice, and... 
we do pit cycles and stuff. You have to pit a certain amount of times depending on the amount of laps and stuff like that. We do drafting and stuff like that. It's really fun. Um, we usually get a group of guys together, grill, and, you know, as I've gotten older, partake in beverages uh, that you're not allowed to yet, Nate. Uh, and uh, and uh, this one instance I had brought... It was, it was the first it was the first or second throwback weekend in Arlington. We had it at the old house. We had my buddy and his two sons, Alex, myself, and my buddy BJ, and then my other big buddy, Big Gene, as we affectionately call him Big Dog. So we had a we had seven people there. And we set it up to race four heat races and that's where I introduced Alex to passing points. He said, I don't know how that's going to work. He said, but we'll, we'll try it, whatever. Because each one of these things, I think each, each person had like the eight cars. Something each. like that. There's 56 of them. They're trying to make 24 spots. The feature race, because I've only got 24 pit spots. We take so many out of that, and then we run a B main. Then when I had to put all the passing points in there, Alex goes unglued. He won the first heat with his car. He started outside the front row. He won it. He got just a little bit of passing points for it. Not much. My guy who won the fourth heat started like 17th and won the heat. He had an obnoxious amount of passing point. And Alex got really upset because he found out his guy that he won his heat with started seven. Mm -hmm. At this point in time, he goes off on everybody. What the hell? What do you mean fucking passing points? Fucking passing points is bullshit. I don't even know what you're talking about. Ain't no way in hell he can be sitting on the pole. Yeah, look at all of these figures and everything. He said, that's bullshit. I want a heat race. I thought on the pole. <laughs> he said, I said, this is the way y'all all agreed for it. We looked at it. We did it. He's fuck passing points. Shit, I hate them damn things. Get them damn things out of here. Start that race like we're supposed to, like we're supposed to do in a real Saturday night race. Fuck passing points. I'm kiss my ass. I'm going home. Never mind, I am home. Passing points. This, I mean, this went on for twenty minutes. Yeah, twenty minutes of that right there. I, I, I was sitting on a stool. I was laughing. I was crying. I was red. I think everybody was dead at that point. Everybody was rolling. Well, they were. I mean, even being even being in Jake, Jake was on your side a little bit, only because you hated passing points. He was throwing a fit. That was the best fit. I mean, he was going home. He was at home. He was so mad. Then I, then I told him the other day, I said, oh, Shane Clanton thinks the same way you do about passing points. He flipped a car at uh, Arizona's early super late model week races. It's probably four or five years ago now. He said the same thing when they interviewed him after he got out of the car. He said, fuck passing point. 
Now you yeah. you would have had to been there, man. I went on that rant for like twenty minutes. Everybody was laughing. I probably said the whole dictionary. Just trying to get my yeah. point across. Alex, I was wondering. I have a question here. I was wondering. Um, shoot, I gotta be somewhere tomorrow, right? And mm-hmm. like real, really early in the morning, I was wondering if I should um, come back at some time, or because I'd, I'd like to finish recording, but I gotta be somewhere early. early. I mean, this was pretty much uh, where we were going to end, so... Um, yeah, it was a passing point. Yeah, stick around for the outro then, because i got to be somewhere. i got to get my stuff done at about 11, and then got to get prepared, because I'm going to be somewhere at 5 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> oh, damn. All right. Uh, yeah, well, if you got anything that you wanted to, like, say about what we just said, just go ahead and say it, and then uh, I'll move on to the... Outro. We'll do uh, picks real quick. I I don't have much else to say. I mean, it was great getting to talk to your dad and getting to know some new things about officiating and stories because I'm I kind of enjoy a good storyteller. So it's been really fun. I never really I've sat here for four hours and I was never once bored. So yeah. Well, uh, with dad, I guess we appreciate the conversation. It's been fun. Uh, getting to hang out with you. Uh, it's been different having my dad on the show. Um, so I guess uh, we've had the off weekend now. Uh, we'll be heading back to Martinsville um, to to go back racing, a 500-lap short track event. I can't wait. Probably my favorite racetrack on the schedule, one that's definitely at the top of my bucket list. Um, uh, I don't know... Uh, if there's really much to say other than uh, we can get into our picks, uh, I don't know. Nate, probably you'll want to say something about that because it seems oh, yeah. our curse has continued. Yeah, um, I remember you picked the 20. I picked the 5. Just so happened to be that the two favorites in the race, 20 spun, 5 hit them. Both of them were pretty much – their day was kind of done from that point on. So I'm not sure – I think Larson finished ahead just by virtue of completing more laps, but I don't really, uh, I don't really consider that a true win. So I don't think it was fair to either of us. Well, I mean, if you want to say that, we can go back to all of our uh, previous picks, and it oh, wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't if, be uh, four to two. Right, <laughs> or actually five to do now. <laughs> almost every single week of picks, at least one of our picks has had some sort of damage or problem. And I think last week was the first week where nothing happened to our picks. Yeah, you beat me straight up last week. So I guess with that being said, if I'm picking first, I might as well say my pick. Yeah, uh, who you got for Martinsville then? Yeah, well, I usually pick Truex in Martinsville, but I've already picked Truex a couple times this year, so I'm going to try something a little different. I'll probably go with Elliott. Um, ran really well there last year. I think, obviously, with how the Hendrick is sort of been this year. Larson seemed to have been the standout car for most of the year, but I think it's going to be a little different in Martinsville, given Larson usually struggles there. Elliott usually does really well there, so I'm kind of going to go out on a limb with Elliott, which I'm sure it doesn't sound like it because he won the last race there, but compared to picking Truex, which would be the easy way out, I want to try something a little different because I think that he's due for a win this year. He hasn't really Showing what I thought he would show, so I guess if any week, if there's any week for him to win, is this week. 
Yeah, well, um, I think that you're right about the Hendrick stable being kind of a lot better than they have been in the past couple of years. I don't, I don't know who to pick other than the nine without going with your obvious answers. I mean, I could go with the 22 based off of momentum. I could go with the 19 because that's just who I, I feel like dominates short tracks now. I could go with the 11. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but with our bad luck, I don't want to say Denny's going to finally get a win now and then he not win. So. Um, I guess I'll just go out of left field, and I will pick, um, I'll pick the 17 of Chris Buescher. Oh, wow, that's a really bold one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know, I mean. That, Why not? He's ran well. Yeah, yeah, just, like I said, way out of left field. Uh, we'll just throw something, throw a, uh a dart at the board and see where it lands. That's where it landed in my head. So we'll yeah. see. Uh, we'll see if, if, you, if you've got the easy win with the nine car or not. Um, right. I, I probably I just handed it to you, but who knows? All right. Well, good luck. Good luck with those for that. For And thank y'all for having me. I really do appreciate letting me hang on for two episodes. Maybe y'all have me back and, Maybe next time I can bring one of my racing buddies with me and maybe I can call the, if you want a Jeremy Clements or somebody like that and have them join us. Yeah, we'd love to have that. Thanks for being on. Yeah, it was, uh, it was fun. A uh, couple episodes. I think uh, we learned a lot, uh, Nathan and I. Uh, and then, um, you know, last week's episode was fun getting to get down the nitty gritty with the dirt race at Bristol. So, uh, we'll be looking forward to the rest of the season. Uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Welcome. All right, guys. Have a great one. Uh, okay. All right, guys. Uh, that about wraps us up for episode number ten. I can't really believe that we've made it this far. If you've been hanging around since the front end of episode one, well, I want to say that we truly appreciate it um as always you can follow us on twitter at fan fuel podcast one that's a capital f capital f capital p tag that one on the end and uh don't forget to you know comment on any of our tweets at us if you want to have a conversation uh or a topic added to our recording session or if you want to join us like my dad did the past two weeks or colt cramore did a couple of weeks ago uh just Send us a, a private message and we'll go from there. Uh, otherwise, just keep listening to us on all of our providers, Spotify and Apple Podcasts, Simplecast and the like. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. All right. We'll see you next week.